It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root. Happy New Year! It's 2024 on the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And of course, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. And this week on the show, lots of topics to discuss. We're going to go back to 1970 and the career of Bob, but we're also going to go back and look at Bob's encounters with the likes of Johnny Valentine, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Polish Power, Ivan Putzky, the Spaceman, Frank Hickey, and so much more coming this week on the Wrestling Stoop. All of it, I promise you, you don't want to miss. But first, just a friendly reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop with Bob Roop, along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently covering the 1988 and the WWF Project, and also our podcast, Regional Wrestling, where we talk the territories. Guaranteed 100% territory talk each and every time out there on the show, whether it's 1981 Georgia with Jamie Ward, 1986 in the UWF with guest Roman Gomez, or the 1985 Memphis Project with the likes of Steve Crawford and Gene Jackson. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And be sure to follow us on social media, guys. You can follow Bob. You can friend him over at Facebook.com slash poorbobroop. I'm sure he'd love to have you as his Facebook friend. And you guys can follow me, Ray Russell, on X, formerly the Twitter. You can follow me there at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me at Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys. YouTube.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And last but certainly not least, now would be a fantastic time for you guys to become a WrestleCopia patron as we continue to grow. Right now, I'm talking to you guys about that $5 all-access tier over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Yes, indeed, all sorts of gifts for just 5 bucks, including all of my insanely detailed show notes. I'm talking pages and pages of show notes, guys, for the Wrestling Memory Grenade the Regional Wrestling Podcast, and Monday Warfare as well. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Plus, you'll get remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA Project. And that includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, and of course, the Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And if that wasn't all, also you'll get random bonus video drops and other new goodies coming as well. And you get all of that 
for the low, low price of just $5. Five bucks, guys. No subscription. Cancel any time. Please show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like all the content that I offer and every penny of it. Every penny you give goes right back here into funding the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you can, help keep all of these wonderful shows up and running for the months and the years to come. And now with all of that out of the way, time to bring him in for the new year. Here he is one more time, Mr. Bob Roop. Bob, welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop. Thank you, Ray. Good evening to you and good evening to our listener out there. Got to say a happy new year to you, Bob. Well, same here. And happy new year to out there to the wrestling world. I say good evening. You might be listening to this in the morning or Any in the middle of, of the <laughs> middle of the night. Who knows? Well, right. good day, good day or good night might be a might be a best way to put it. But anyway, glad you're listening. Absolutely, uh, man. We have had so much feedback on the San Francisco shows, Bob. Mostly positive, a few detractors, which is expected. Uh, some people just love Roy Shire, and that's yeah, that's okay. They're entitled to their opinion, as are you. So sure. I just wanted to get that out of the way at the top of the show, though. Uh, great numbers on those shows. Everybody really enjoyed them. They were happy with the Ask Bob episode we did for the holidays as well. Hey, for those who have asked, uh, inquired, don't worry. Ask Bob, too. We'll be somewhere down the line. We will get into it again. In fact, some of the questions you asked may be answered prior to that because some of them actually coincide with the stories we're going to tell in between time. So it'll all work out at the end. I do promise you guys that. But, Bob, last week we go off air and we spend another 30 minutes talking. And we talk, you know, you had a lot of great stories to share that, unfortunately, you know, we don't have here on the show. But I, I said, I saved them all as far as in my memory banks go. So I said, you're going to tell each and every one of those stories on the show because the fans are going to love them. Uh, from Jay York to Johnny Valentine. And so this week, I guess since it's closer to the time frame here, I thought it would be cool if we kicked off the show talking about the legendary Johnny Valentine. I'd be, I'd be great because uh, he was legendary and. I was booked against him very early in my career. Um, and a guy who already, all the boys in the locker room will talk about other wrestlers. And a lot of times it's like uh, they're they're trying to say, oh, I worked with so-and-so. And by, you know, if you work with a world champion, obviously you're a main event guy. You're a big leaguer. So guys are always like, you're name dropping, you know, like, yeah, I work with so-and-so. Very few of them had worked with Johnny Valentine, but they all of them were talked about him because he had a style. Let's put it this way. Johnny was a guy that took a while to get over to where people really accepted him. But once he did, he stayed over. I mean, usually forever. That's usually uh, exactly how he's described by those in the know, those who were yeah, there. It, yeah. it took a while. Sometimes it took four or five months to get him over. But when he was over, and the reason why was because... Johnny wasn't trying to get people to suspend their disbelief to believe that he was for real. He was trying to get them to believe he was real for real, that he really was out there, you know, wrestling for real. And his style was very conducive to that. And uh, his style was very simple. I had the benefit of having Eddie Graham. Eddie was trying to coach me and bring me along and teach me things, and he would tell me stuff. And he told me that Valentine, he had asked Johnny Valentine, was one of his peers during his era, and he had asked Johnny about why he did his his methodology in the ring was very simple. He didn't do a lot of things. 
And Valentine told him that he watched himself on TV and anything that he saw in his own performance that didn't look completely real uh, and didn't look good, he didn't do it. So, you know, as he got older and, you know, the, the road and injuries and age and uh, you get where you can't do everything. So uh, he would limit it to just a few things he could do that were believable. And it wasn't much. I mean, uh, he didn't have to do a whole lot. And uh, we'll get into it as we get a little further into the story. But, well, let me go, let me back up a little. He was in. He came in for a match with, with Jack Briscoe in Tampa. In, in Florida. Okay, yeah, okay. In Florida. And John, yeah, this, Florida is the only place I, I ever was in a dressing room with him or, you know, or, or was around him. Right. Shortly after this, he was injured in a plane crash. He was paralyzed from the waist down. So I, I don't know if I ever saw I might have seen him again, but I don't think, you know, he wasn't the kind of guy that, you know, I'm sure he had his contemporaries, guys from his era that might run up and say, hey, JV, how you doing? But he wouldn't met Mr. Warm and Friendly, you know, uh, Mr. Cuddlebear. So I kind of uh, sense that. <laughs> Yeah, if I saw him, uh, yeah, I might have certainly said hello. But anyway, and and when he was wrestling in Florida and Tampa, Eddie Eddie Graham asked me. It was after I had gone on earlier. He asked me to stick around and watch the match. And he went out there with Jack Briscoe. And Jack, you know, was kind of not a white meat baby face, but yeah, kind of, because he wasn't real big. And I want to say white meat. He wasn't. Well, I give you an example. Uh, Dick the Bruiser, after being healed for so long, once in a while they would turn him babyface to go against a really nasty uh, heel that they needed somebody really tough to uh, go against. Right. So Bruiser would be the babyface. Well, he's not white meat. You know, he's no, dark. definitely not. <laughs> he, he's like a meat chopper. He's the so, other meat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So Jack was, you know, Jack was. Uh, you know, a typical good guy. And Jack weighed about, I don't know, he only weighed about 210, 220 pounds, which is big for, you know, our normal society, but not for wrestling. But, you know, Jack used drop kicks and they did a lot of action. And because he was nice looking, most heels didn't want to take him off his feet and have him down or have him take, put him in a headlock and take him over where you couldn't see him. You couldn't see his good looks. You know, he'd work, you'd work holes with him where, most of his, certainly his face and his his, his nice butt build was uh, was visible. You know that's you know show business. You know, so you want to show someone who is, is admirable isn't to look at. He's an athlete, nice looking guy, and all that. And plus, Jack was very expressive with his face, with uh, selling, uh, looking like he was being hurt, and and he was very expressive. So if I was if I had been working with him, I would have done some stuff. In the beginning, where I would try to take over on him and out-wrestle him, and, but I would give him a chance to show his good stuff before I ever took over on him. I would have had him at least drop-kick me once or, you sure. know, uh, get me with a scoop slam or something. A couple of high spots coming off the ropes where he outthought me, and then I might take over on him for a while. But right. uh, Johnny Valentine didn't do that, and uh, there was no heat between them. I mean, they hadn't, as far as I knew, they hadn't wrestled before, certainly not in Tampa. And uh, Johnny took over on him right away. He grabbed him, he pushed him in a corner, grabbed him in a front face lock and pulled him out in the center of the ring and just uh, pulled him down into where he's laying on top of him. Jack was like in a front face lock with his face down, you know, laying on his 
the surface of his body, and that's you didn't that's all you saw. Johnny kept him there for like two or three minutes. And after, you know, people didn't get to see Jack do anything yet. So after people didn't start yelling boring, but they were anticipating the normal uh, routine of Jack, you know, being able to do some of this flashy stuff. And finally, he worked his way up and back into a corner. And our five minutes might have gone by by this time. And they'd bend up back in the corner and the referee'd make them break, of course. And Johnny would break clean. And then he grabbed Jack. And he hit him, just hit him with a forearm, which is legal. He hit him with a big smashing forearm in the chest, grabbed him in the front face lock again and dragged him back to the center of the ring and put him down again for another two or three or four minutes. Well, he did this for about 15 minutes. And by this time, <laughs> uh, when Jack got up to his feet and actually got to the point where he got the front face lock off his from around his head and was standing upright and doing the standing wrist lock, where he's got, you know, they're fighting for a position for, to see who can overpower the other in that top wrist lock. I mean, that was like they've done some fantastic high spot where, you know, running around, drop kicks and all that. The fans were getting with it. They were like, yeah, come on, come on. But when Johnny uh, snapped him back into the front face lock again, oh, and put him back down on the mat, uh, back down where they'd been for that like 12, 14 minutes already, uh, there was, I mean, he got some serious heat and he hadn't done anything. Right. I mean, he hadn't, he hadn't fouled him. He hadn't, th this went on for about 40 minutes and, uh, the match I think was 42 minutes long. And so when, uh, uh, at the end, when Jack made it, when he made a comeback, I'm telling you the place went, you know, he, he got a big reaction because the people had been waiting for it for so long. And I'm convinced that at least some of them believe that what they were saying was real. Maybe uh, maybe all of them, but a lot of them certainly did because they weren't doing anything that was expected. Of course. So, so I'd heard that story in regards to Johnny Valentine and how he worked. It's basically exactly how you described it, that he would grab a hold and he would hold it, and the crowd would kind of just sit there for a while, but eventually he held it so long that it pissed the crowd off. You're, you're verifying that with me, which is pretty cool because there's not a lot. There's a little Johnny Valentine out there as far as you know lengthy matches go. There's some squashes, too, and believe me, Johnny knew he wasn't getting paid by the hour in those squashes, so there was no grabbing a hold there. It was an elbow to the back of the head, and this is over. But uh, I, right. I think that's pretty cool to hear. That's what you know. That's the way he worked with Jack Briscoe, and it did. You're, through your own words, it got over with the, with the uh, crowd there. So just another example, because I've heard that same exact story, not with Briscoe, but just Johnny's style in general. So I think that's kind of cool that you, you're basically verifying it here. You know, that was something that he did do. I've heard that here in this territory. At one point, we had a wrestler here in the Cleveland Territory named Johnny Powers, and he was essentially our Hulk Hogan, if you will, for years here. And anybody in their late, late 60s or 70s-plus 70s years old around here, they'll tell you he was the man. And his number one, you know, the antithesis of Johnny Powers was Johnny Valentine. They were the main event in the Cleveland Territory. So he, he did that quite a bit up here. Yeah, I knew I knew Johnny. I mean, I didn't know him well, but I I met him in passing somewhere. Oh, uh, yeah, I heard he was a major player. But okay, so I'm booked with Johnny at the Bayfront St. Petersburg, and the main event is Jack Briscoe against uh, Dory Punk Jr. And they had they had wrestled in Tampa. I don't know, at least two or three times. So I'm you know I'm relatively green. I'm a couple years in the business. And, as I said on an earlier program, it takes 10 years normally to learn the business. And I mean, I was uh, 
you know, it was a quick study. It didn't, but it just to, in order to learn everything you need to know to be able to go anywhere in the world and protect yourself against what you might run into. I'm talking about if you're in Europe, you're in the Far East, you're in South Africa, you're in Australia, you're in New Zealand, wherever you are. Whatever you run into, you're prepared to, and I'm talking about not not, not just in the ring, with promotion. For example, uh, I worked a month in Germany for a German promoter, and uh, when it came time to pay me, he said he gave me a, a different figure from what he was going to pay me to what I'd been told before I started. I'd been getting a draw all along, but the main payoff was going to come after it was all over because they wanted to make sure you were going to stick around or you didn't get hurt or whatever, and you had to earn your money, well, he, he was going to short me, and I had to know what to do. And I, fortunately, I did. I just told him, well, you, you can go ahead and do that, but I will tell everyone that I ever run to the rest of my career that you can't be trusted. You say one thing, and then you, you do another. So if you want to, if that's worth the short me out of 500 bucks or whatever, uh, be my guest. But so, of course, he paid me. He made it, he made out like, oh, well, I was just kidding, of course. But, you know, you need to have, you need to have be able to know those things to be able to protect yourself. So so I'm only a couple of years in the business. I, in fact, I was kind of intimidated working with Johnny because, like I say, he's like this this master and I'm I'm an apprentice, basically. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a point in our match where I somehow it was out on the apron. And he was inside, and he would come to the ropes and, like, try to grab me, and, and he was telling me to punch him. Well, I hadn't developed the ability to punch yet. What I did was, if in the ring, if I had a guy, I usually, if I was going to punch him, I'd grab him by the hair or some way I could hold his head steady. I'd club him with uh, my closed fist, but with not with the knuckles, with the, with the flat of my hand. But with it closed, I closed him on the side of the neck with it. And and I would lay it in. I mean, I don't mean as hard as I could, but I, I didn't have the ability to throw a punch and and just make it light, you know, like the guy. And later on, I learned to, but I couldn't do it yet at that time. And I didn't want to look horrible, so I'd lay it in a little bit. Well, Johnny was coming, and he was telling me, he sent word to the referee that she came over to get me off the apron to punch him. And I didn't, like I say, he wasn't giving me time to reach out and grab him and hold him steady. So I think the first five times I punched him, I hit him in a different place every time. One of them was on the ear. One of them was on the temple. One of them was on the shoulder. One of them was on top of his head, I think. And one of them might have been on the jaw. And I mean, I hit him pretty hard. And uh, (laughs) he just... I mean, I was oh, I was mortified. I felt terrible, but I mean, he kept coming. What are you going to do? I mean, I, I had to keep trying, and he <laughs> wasn't ducking it. I just was, you know, I was rearing back, holding on to the top rope, and laying into it, like you know, like, you know, when I was punching him, like trying to get him to back up, and eventually he backed up and let me get into the ring. So I don't remember exactly what we did. I mean, into the in the match, who won, right. or but that that's not important, but. That was that match. They had a thing called the Golden Circle, and they had the ringside seats for uh, twenty bucks. And I think uh, uh, you did you did a, a cost of living, yeah, yeah. And I, that would be a hundred about one hundred fifty bucks in today's money, yeah, for a rinks for a ringside seat. 
for no, wrestling back in the for pro wrestling yeah in 72 you know, there were, yeah there were people in the audience in the evening dress i'm talking about tuxedo coats well and, for that uh, kind of front row seat back in those days they probably rocked like that <laughs> well it did they just well they said well wrestling uh, twenty dollars for a seat for yeah like, it must be something really spectacular i mean you know, there's people that are called, I kind of, I call them money snobs, you know. Well, if I have to pay this, you know, if it costs as much to see it, it must be worth something. Anyway, after the after the show, Eddie Graham had a little after-match uh, get-together at his house. And uh, I, Jack Briscoe and I were invited. And later on, we were, uh, I was married uh, to my first wife at the time, and we were going to go to my place. And. He had a, a an assignation with a girl, young girl named Sherry, who was Bobby Shane's uh, yes. assistant. Miss Sherry, oh yeah, yeah, Miss Sherry, and he and she and Jack had struck up on a friendship, and so he was meeting her over there, and so we went to Eddie's place. Eddie asked us to come by. You know, Jack had been in the main event, and I'd been in the, the most special match, but we've been in the last two matches, I think. I, I might have gone third from this. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, going on against Johnny, he was one of the major players on that card. So, so we go over there, and I I had never met Johnny or talked to him before the our match. I before mean, you hit him in the face, right? Yeah, <laughs> and and the eye, and the jaw, and sure. the shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> might have hit him in the, I don't know. Might have hit him in the butt, for all I know. But yeah. <laughs> uh, if I, you know, the night he wrestled Jack. Johnny wasn't the kind that, you know, he was sitting in the dressing room. He looked like he was contemplating murdering somebody or that maybe he'd just been murdered. Because, he seemed to you know, always have that face. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't the guy you want to just walk up to and say, hey, how's it going? Right. Hey, hey. So I, I don't remember ever meeting him even So before our match. So anyway, get over to uh, Eddie Graham's place and, you know, we're dressed up. I didn't have a sports coat on but i had a nice shirt and you know dress clothes and he came up to me and he said hey uh uh about you know in our match he said can i show you something about you know punching and and i, I didn't want to but what are you going to say and now <laughs> there's only about 10 people there but they're all watching so he i'm sitting there and i'm i'm buried i'm ready and he waffled me i'm telling you what he just smacked her, and he hit me right on the side of the neck. But I'm telling you, I mean, and I got all oh, I, I wasn't drunk. I mean, I'd had a beer or two, but I, I, I was a perfect mark on that one because I got hot. You know, I said, I said, I mean, I bristled up. I said, What the hell do you think you're doing? I mean, here we are at this party. The Eddie Graham's wife and any of the women there had on nice dresses, and right. you know, it's like an affair. Sure. And here we here we are doing this boorish type crap right in the middle of this nice party. And, you know, just my sensibilities were, I mean, I'm not a snob or anything. I'm a middle class guy. But, you know, I just thought, you know, I, he embarrassed me. Let's put it that way. Sure. So, so I, you know, I got hot and I said, what, what do you think you're doing? You know, and I, I, mean, I wasn't going to punch him out or anything, but I, I was going to cuss, you know, just, well, hey, Graham, you know, and they, I'm sure they all loved it after after I left, I'm sure they laughed their butt off. But, you know, Eddie said, ah, come on, Bob, you know. And so anyway, we had, you know, I calmed down. We we had another beer or two. And then we left. Well, for some reason, Johnny wanted to come with us. I don't I remember why. Maybe he didn't want to stick around with Eddie. And he was by himself. And we were, 
Yeah, that's probably it. We were going to a like a private party, and he so it was a way for him not to have to just go back to his hotel or a motel sure. where we staying. So he went with us, and uh, I'm still hot. So we're we're at my my apartment. We lived up on the second floor of this apartment complex, right across from the street from Harry Smith's gym in Tampa. And uh, Harry Smith was a pro wrestler who also ran a was a bodybuilder. He also ran a gym. He was a really good guy. He was very good to me. Uh, he was I've always got a lot of time for Harry, and he was he was an older wrestler by the time. He's still working time to time, but good guy. Anyway. Uh, so I was still hot about the punch at the, you know, the embarrassing me. And by this time I've had a few beers. And uh, <laughs> so we were up on that second floor and now there's a balcony. And, uh, you know, on the right, I turned to where I was facing Johnny. To my right is the building, uh, my apartment. And we're like one apartment down from my place. And the other place was uh, the, the folks were gone. So there was nobody we were going to be bothering anybody in the next apartment. On my left, which would be Johnny's right, was the balcony. Was was the, the uh, balcony ledge was about oh, I don't know three feet high, uh, came up to about your hip, or maybe waist. And so, say we punched each other. If Johnny punched me and knocked me out, I would hit. I might fall against the building and slump down on the floor. If I knocked him out, he might go over that balcony. <laughs> and land on the concrete below. Yeah. So I said, I turned around and I said, uh, would you mind showing me that punch again? And <laughs> he knew what was happening. He got a smile on his face because he, he, was, he was weird, let's put it that way. I've heard so he's I a said, sadist, yeah. man. <laughs> yes, he said, yeah. I said, yeah, show me that again. I, 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 you, I said, you first. And we punched each other at least 20 times. Jesus. And I mean, I was laying it in as hard as I could lay it in. And I waffled him. I saw his eyes crossed a couple times. <laughs> I mean, I didn't hit him on it. This time I hit him on the neck. I mean, the side of the neck. But I mean, I was, you know, I was 280 pounds. The Olympics were about a year, you know, only a couple of years back. Sure. So I was, you know, I was, and I was working out at the gym too. So I, I, I laid him, he was laying him in. I mean, he was waffling me too. Uh, and finally, after, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 exchanges. He said, well, he said, I think you got, I think you got it down. And so we went, we went into my apartment and I don't remember what happened the rest of the evening. I mean, I wasn't knocked out or anything, but I do have a picture of him the next night in the dressing room. He just sat in the corner and didn't say a word. And he looked like he was, he looked like he was about half dead. Uh, I, cause I, I waffled the hell out of him. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of my Johnny Valentine story. Uh, <laughs> well, everybody I mean, can tell that story. So yeah, my first my first night of really really meeting a guy. I guess you'd say we got to know each other real well. I guess so. Uh, but yeah, he was he was uh, he was a master. I saw him working later on after I went to Amarillo. I, I saw him one of the towns up there. He was working against somebody, and he wasn't working for Funk. I don't know how. He happened to be on the card that I, I witnessed. But, you know, he did the same thing. He didn't have 40 minutes, but he had about 20 minutes. He still managed, he still managed to get his heat by not really doing anything, but still doing things. You know, I mean, he was he was competing. He wasn't walking and talking, stalling. He was actually in holes, you know, where right. it looked like he wasn't doing much. But he was 
you know, he he got a reaction when the match was over. Uh, there was a response, a good response. So, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my, my JV story. And that's my because because everybody just happens to have one, Bob. Yeah, that's my Johnny Valentine story. You know. <laughs> well, <laughs> very cool. I, yeah, it was. I uh, so, I think I got a respect. I mean, if, if there is such a thing. Oh, if he said, uh, I think you got it down. I think you know. I don't know. I don't know if you. I don't like. I don't know the man. I don't know if you, John, Johnny Valentine, gave out respect, but I'm sure he. It was mutual. Something was mutual between you two after that. Anyway, we'll put it. We'll put it that way. That's, that's well, you know, you wouldn't consider that a rib. What we did, no, because you know, ribs are something you'd laugh at. What we were doing, I don't want anything to laugh about because. Both we just brutalized the hell out of each other, but yeah. I could have taken him down and, you know, done anything. I could have broken his arms and legs, but I couldn't do that. I wasn't going to do that. I never even thought about doing that to anybody. Well, a few guys, but uh, that Sadly, was just, back then, that was kind of, I mean, I hate to say it in some ways, kind of paying your dues, you know, to the old guard anyway. Well, yeah, in a sense, but, you know, I know that story got around, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute, but... Okay. I think that might have had something to do with what happened to me. I'm just realizing that now. It might have had something to do with uh, the way I got treated after that. I mean, obviously, I was being figured in, you know, to get a match against Johnny, and he didn't, I don't think he beat me right in the center. If he did, it wasn't you know, like by a pinfall or anything. I, mean, I, think I, it, I believe it was a disqualification finish. Right? Yeah. 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 They weren't going to beat me. And, you know, that's you know, for a relative newcomer, really, even if I've been around for a while. Um, you know, I'd been out by that time for, I'd been to Amarillo and I'd been to Australia and Japan. Sure. So I hadn't been in Florida steadily, but you know, I'd been there the majority of my career. Uh, so they'd seen plenty of me, but they hadn't seen me. They hadn't seen me at that, that verified level, you know, and not everybody right. gets to work with Johnny Valentine. No, that's for sure. Well, nobody has so, that story to share with Johnny Valentine either. Yeah. But you got so many stories this year. We started off this entire thing, uh, well, nine episodes. This is episode 10. So wow. nine, nine episodes back, we started off with your rookie matchup. And then we went through a few months of 1969. And slowly we moved away. We spent some time in San Francisco. And I thought this week would be a good time to go back to the beginning and kind of continue to tell that story. So I'm not going to say we have one specific format here on the show, but I do want to keep telling everything in order and then in between, we can jump around and we told San Francisco, and I'm sure we're going to tell, you know, various uh, your trip to Japan, your trips to Japan, things like that, and other stories too. But this week, this episode, we're going to kind of go back where we left off on those episodes, and that's to continue to talk about some of the early talent that you worked with and some of your other uh, early experiences here in the Florida Territory in six, the end of 69 and more so 1970, and some really interesting names to go over here this week. Yeah, I want to interject something here sure. uh, from a couple minutes, ago, a few minutes ago. Yeah, for any any listener out there who still has a uh, a bone to pick with me about uh, Roy Shire or anything else, I hope you'll continue to listen and and listen to everything I have to offer. Uh, if you do, maybe with time, you'll feel like I have credibility enough that what I'm saying might have more value to you and that, you know, it's not just some, some, uh, you know, buzzer neck puke that came in here and didn't like Ray <laughs> Shire, but, uh, you know, a guy who, uh, had full range and with and breadth of experience in the wrestling business, who, uh, was giving an informed opinion 
And not only that, but one that's had 40 years uh, of reflection and be able to look back on it, to have it, you know, in my memory banks, just there and maybe brewing, maybe not, but certainly there and uh, something I can look back on. You know, but all every everything that you do, I think, has something to do with uh, your current behavior. You know, maybe if you don't only see it that way, you know, it maybe changed you in some little way that affects maybe five seconds of your day every day. That's from something that happened 40 years ago. Anyway, for uh, listeners out there who who still have a <laughs> if, if you're still hot at me about something, well, hang around. Maybe I can. Maybe I can make you feel better about things. No, that, that, I, I like that. Uh, maybe you are, you don't agree out there with whatever went down in San Francisco or whatever the case may be, but Bob offers a lot more than that, uh, that he brings a lot to the table. And I think, as you said, Bob, I didn't really look at it that way, but hang around there for a while, guys, and you'll, maybe you'll learn after 20, 30, 40 episodes, you know what, other than this thing that I disagree with, there's really not a whole lot else that you know I'm, I'm having an issue with here. So maybe I can go back and, reevaluate this or you can continue to you know have your own beliefs you know this is that's the way sure. the world works you know opinions exactly. are okay you know people we're human that way bob right we have our own opinions exactly so and everybody's entitled to your own opinion but you're not entitled to your own facts i mean the facts right. are facts you can't that. say no i yeah. i it didn't happen that way well uh if you can prove it didn't you know and that might be that might be very possible you know sure. i mean i Again, I said on earlier and early outings that I had matches with people that I didn't remember and I didn't believe. I said, no, I, I, don't, I couldn't have. I don't remember. I would have remembered wrestling against Pat Patterson and somebody sent me a film. I said, well, yeah, obviously I did. Right. Uh, so, again, that memory memory's not perfect. But in that case, it's not lack of memory. It's that those matches, those kind of matches just didn't go in the memory files because yeah, you know, if you got not only your own three thousand matches, but another ten thousand or fifteen thousand of other matches you watch, there's only so many memory files that right, you can put sure. stuff in. Sure. So you know, the good matches, the things. Uh, my first match with Bruiser Brody, his first match, I don't remember it. I know, I know, I had it because I do remember the setup and everything. Uh, he came the week before he came by the ring and said something. I challenged him. And so the next week, uh, we had a match in Fort Worth. And But the match apparently went, it had to go good because I didn't remember it. Mm-hmm. If it had been a, some kind of abortion or, you know, really screwed up or somebody got hurt uh, or, you know, after it, his, he, he had to retire from the wrestling business because he looked so horrible, uh, he never got even got started, uh, then, you know, I'd remember it. But. Anyway, onward and upward. Yeah, I can't wait till we get into some Bruiser Brody down the line as well. But I guess we'll we'll go back. We uh, were I think the last time we talked about your career back at the beginning of in '69, you broke in in July. We got to the basically the end of the year, right around November. Or so you were working the tag team of the Blue Demons. We talked about them a little bit, Rocky Tamayo and Frank Martinez. And then as we close out the year, you work some more tag team matches. You're getting random partners on your side of the match. But you guys are working some some seriously established tag teams, and this one, Chris Markoff and Bronco Lubich, and I, I, I kind of marked out a little bit because a lot of people know Bronco's name from the referee in World Class later on, much later on in his in, in his uh, career, he even managed a little bit there as well. But 
Here it is, Chris Markoff and Bronco Lubitsch. Do you, I, you say you don't have everybody in your memory files, and I'm not asking you necessarily if you remember these matches per se, but I'm just curious if you have any stories about either one of those guys. Well, I do remember. Uh, I do remember him because Bronco was, you know, he was nearing the end of his, his wrestling part of his career. He went on to become a referee out there. Uh, and I worked with him as a referee a bunch of times, but uh, not in Florida, but where was he? Louisiana? Da- I Dallas. can't remember. Yeah. I mean, probably yeah, maybe other places, but usually Dallas. Yeah, yeah that's right. You know, uh, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, you know, he was probably, I don't know, 45, 50. Uh, he had black hair, but uh, his body looked, you know, old and he wasn't in great shape. Uh, Markov was, um, Middle, I don't know, middle European. He had a he had a pretty heavy accent uh, at the time. He was a nice guy. I mean, he was, uh, and they were they were fine. You know, they were good. I don't know if Aldo Bogni ever t- teamed up with uh, Bronco, but I remember. And Aldo was older when I when that first time I saw him in the ring. You know, he was probably fifty. Right. And I just and don't get me wrong. I mean, at the time, I just wasn't used to that. Uh, in Florida, there weren't a lot of old, older guys. When I talked a story about, oh, the manager with the cane, uh, Galento, uh, Galento, yeah, Mario Galento. Uh, you know, he was older, but he wasn't wrestling. You know, he was a manager. He, he went down the ring with his cane. Right. Uh, they didn't have a lot of guys. You know, guys who were in their fifties and sixties. Now, uh, we haven't gotten them. We were, we were, we went to England for a little while uh, last week, week before. But, I, you know, I was reminiscing in Miami, running through some memories the other day. I remember working a show in Manchester where the main event guy had to be 70 years old. He was bald, white. What hair he had left was white. He had a pair of tonk, trunks that looked like he had never washed them. Or, and they, they, <laughs> they, they was like 50 pounds heavier when he first wore them because it was saggy. Wool. Wool it was, <laughs> he was saggy. His junk was hanging out. And, and uh, one of his jock straps, straps was hanging out, and it, one of his boots was only half laced. And he oh, was sitting, there, he was standing in the middle of the ring with a hold on this guy. And the building, it was a main event. The building was sold out. And I'm yeah. thinking, my God, this guy looks. And there was a lot of another guy, Nick. I can't remember this guy's name, but I do remember a guy named Nick McManus. He was sure. also 60s or 70s. And these guys, you know, they got over. And they stayed over, and they just kept working as long as people yeah, buy tickets. McManus to see was them. a huge name over there. Yeah. Oh yeah, and and uh, and these guys were. I mean, Tucker, you know, and the, they looked it. They looked their age. They, you know, it wasn't like they were, you know, great bills. They were a lot older guy. I've met. I've known older men, and I've seen guys in the gym at sixty-five look great. But, you know, they've been working out for uh, their whole life. But um, these guys weren't it. You know, they'd been in. Uh, every every match I wrestled over there, uh, the places that the boys really liked to work uh, was a theater that also had a bar in it. Because as soon as you got done wrestling, you go shower and go in the bar, and you could if you were on first, you you had time to drink a couple pitchers before everybody else got in there. So uh, yeah, and that they weren't going to the gym after the matches; they were going in the bars. So maybe before the matches too, but. Uh, yeah, and it looked it. But you know what? That's wrestling. You know, what fans, what they believe, you know, they've seen these guys for, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 years. And they said, well, he's got to be tough. You know, he's been getting beat on or he's been beating these people for 45 years now. 
Uh, he, I guess he can still do it, so we'll we'll go see him do it. Uh, you know, how can you argue with success? Now, there might be purists out there and say, oh, that's a disgrace. Some 70-year-old guy with his junk hanging out shouldn't be out there in the ring. Well, if the building's full, uh, yeah, he should. Because if I'm on the card, <laughs> I was on the card that night. I made a good payoff, you know, as opposed to having some young buck like me in the main event where there's 10 people in the house, you know. You know, your payoff is some peanut husk from the floor. No, I, uh, yeah, whatever works. Let's see, how did we get segued to England again? Uh, well, uh, it was Chris Markoff somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the most memorable thing I have with Chris was in uh, a place called Belglade, Florida. Okay. And uh, we were in a tag team match against, I don't remember who, it doesn't matter. But we were get some pretty good heat. We were against some, a couple of Hispanic wrestlers. There were a lot of migrant workers in Belglade. They had a, some produce fields around there, that, you know, strawberries, something that, that had a lot of migrant workers in the area, and they would come to the matches. And we were getting some heat on uh, a Hispanic babyface, and all of a sudden uh, we hear this in, in a Hispanic accent, you will stop that, and we turn around, and here's this guy. He's a local chief or sub-chief of police. Got his police uniform on. He's got his gun out. Wow. And he's, he's saying, you guys will stop, do, stop doing that. <laughs> he, he acted like he was going to shoot us if we kept getting beating this guy up. What are you going to do with that? Um, <laughs> so you're getting anyway. heat, heat to the point where yeah. they're drawing their guns on you. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> well, that didn't happen very often. That didn't happen again. I told him when I told the officer about it, I said, you know, man, maybe you need to get somebody else for security in that place. But anyway, at our back, our way back to the dressing room, Chris was looking the wrong way, and this woman hit him with her purse. And I mean, she knocked him down, and uh, he got up, and he was he, he was like half loop, half goofy. I grabbed him by the arm and took him in, a, in the dressing room, and his nose was bleeding, and he had a one of his eyes was puffed up, and I had a, a, a like a thing on his uh, forehead that was bleeding. She apparently had something, a brick or something, sure, yeah, a big rock or something, her purse, because she waffled, uh, just waffled the hell out of him. And one of the photographers, either after Napolitano was there that night, one of the magazine guys that would, they would come down for, you know, they would go to different uh, territories right. and take pictures for their magazines, was there and got a picture of Chris. He's looking in the mirror and he's, oh, he was hot. He was cussing. Yeah, you know, he just he wanted to go out there. And, I said, I wouldn't go out there and take on that woman if I were you. She kicked <laughs> your butt the first time, you know. So, uh, they took a picture of him looking in the mirror with that. And uh, later on, a few months later, I saw it on, I'm not sure if it was on the cover. It might have been. It might have been not, maybe not the cover, but like a, a cover with four or five different pictures or, you know, little sure. sections on. One of them was Chris bleeding, and there was this angle he got into a beef with, you know, somebody horrible, and, you know, this was the result of it. No, this was the result of about three hundred pound woman hitting him in the face with her purse. That doesn't have quite the same ring as him going toe to toe with Johnny Valentine, for example. So, that is uh, that's homework for our wrestling listeners out there. If anybody knows what magazine Bob's talking about, please post a picture on one of my social media accounts or send it to Bob as well, because it'd be fun to see see that picture and see what you're referencing there. The picture of Chris Markoff with a with a bloody bloody knot on his head or whatever the case may be there. So that's 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 pretty cool. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought it was funny. Oh, he was hot. He was yelling, at and he had this. He still does to an extent, not as much, but he had he had this charming accent. You know, I mean, he didn't cuss just in plain English. He he had an accent, the Middle European, whatever it was. Sure. Uh, and so he you know, he was cussed up a storm, and uh, he, no, he wasn't thinking about going out there and trying to get revenge. Reminds me of another story. Working another show. Who was the who was the black manager? Big tall guy. Uh, he wrestled for a long time. Uh, what era? Bear, this Bearcat. Be? Bearcat. Oh, Bearcat. Right. Yeah. Bearcat. Right. Bearcat was a heck of a guy. Uh, I've got another story, but I'll just tell the one now about any out in the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were at, we were at a show. I don't remember where, but uh, it wasn't a big big building. There's a couple hundred people there. Well, it was like a, a college or a high school gymnasium, and they had uh, they had bleachers. And so we were talking before the match. But nobody was there yet. Bearcat and I were there early for some reason before they opened the, the, the box office. You know, I was working in the office. I was assistant booker, and I said something about, you know, I, somebody, had, somebody had gone out into the audience uh, the night before in Miami or someplace. And so I was talking to that about, so Bearcat about that, I said, yeah, you know, he said, I said, I really hate it when guys do that, you know, because, uh, you know, the very best can come of it is that nobody gets hurt. I said, the worst is if people get hurt, you know, the wrestler gets hurt, you get all kinds of lawsuits. And all. You know, I'm talking from a, the standpoint of someone working in the office of trying to be physically responsible and all that. Right. So during my match, um, I'm in the ring or getting introduced and I see this motion up in the audience up at the top of the bleachers, probably about uh, maybe 35, 40 yards away. And, uh, wow, something hits me in the chest. It's a 50-cent piece. A person up in the top bleachers had thrown this thing and hit me with it. And I just I lost it. I took off, and I, ran, I, charged, I charged up through the bleachers. I mean, people were scattering. People thought I'd lost my mind. You know, nobody, because... This person was at the very back, so all the people sitting in front of him didn't see him throw it. Right. They had no idea why I charged out of the ring. I mean, like a maniac, I just <laughs> lost it. And I charged up the stairs, screaming, I'm, I'm going to kill you. And the person I that threw it, by the time I got up the top and, and was going down the aisle to try to get down the, the row of seats to get them, they took off the other way and ran out of the building. And so... I worked my way down to back down to the ring. So later on that night and hour later that evening in the dressing room, uh, Bearcat says to me, said, Bob, you know, I really, I really appreciate that advice you gave me about not leaving the ring and going out and messing around in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, you set him up good for that one. Here, I'm telling them to be responsible. Don't go out in the audience yeah. and cause these problems. And I go charging all the way up, as far away from the ring as I can get without right. running through yeah. the wall. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's funny. Oh, uh, no, that's it, awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, when you tell stories about your own idiocy, I think it's helpful because <laughs> I try to tell our, our, our listener out there that we're not knocking people. We're just telling what happened. No, just having fun. You know, like, yeah, and I can I can tell what happened to me too. Yeah. I, I'm as big a as, as anybody I'm talking about. So you know, uh, could have you put know, your just, arm around Bearcat and said, 
Uh, do as I say, not as I do. Barry. Yeah, there you go. Well, he was he was he was fun. Um, I, you talk about a guy with class. We were coming back from uh, Tallahassee. You're we coming back from Tallahassee. The car broke down. It was me, Dick Murdoch, Buddy Colt, and Bearcat Wright. Now, Buddy had 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 the plane crash where he messed up his ankle, so he's yeah. he's semi crippled. You know, he couldn't he, not crippled, but he was impaired. And you know he couldn't actually couldn't run for it if he had to. You know he couldn't. He wasn't wasn't capable of it. And here we are broken down, and it's just like after the matches. So it's uh, say eleven thirty, like eleven o'clock, not ten thirty. Say it's the night before hunting season opens down there in Florida. We're in uh, I don't want to say Ocala. That wasn't that. Perry, I think, is the name of the little town. Yeah, Perry, because that was that's where the forest festival was. Yeah, Perry, Florida, and um, well, that memory, I, that's I'm thought of that that town in many many years. Anyway, so we found a place to get the car fixed. Well, we got Bearcat, Buddy, and Mur- Murdoch, and myself. Now we're all healed. That's one thing. The other thing is Bearcat's black. This town is a uh, you know uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be derogatory. But you know, we're talking about nineteen early, you know, the nineteen seventies. Sure, was I, I see. I see where this is going. Redneck city. I mean, you got some yeah. serious racers in there. So, took a couple of hours to get the car fixed. While we're there, the word gets out that these rustlers are over so and so's garage. You know, we probably had I don't know twenty five, thirty different people come by to you know to check us out, and all of them are white and uh all men and they didn't come in with arms none of them walked in with a couple guys had pistols on their belt i don't know what why they i don't think they hunted with them but uh nobody brought in their shotgun or their rifle or anything but we knew they were armed they're the gun <laughs> it's the day before hunting season these guys are soon as it turns midnight they're go- they're going to start hunting or definitely you know it's a party, it's party night and, and all of them all of them have been drinking so you talk about a loaded situation, uh, being on, you know, tether hooks about, you know, somebody getting on, you know, somebody braced us, creating a problem for Bearcat. Right. Because, you know, we were going to know we were, we were all in it together. Nobody was going to desert him. And we had a problem with Buddy not even being able to run. You know, we had to run for our lives. Yeah. So I remember that. And Bearcat showed a lot of class on that. And one of the things that really helped there was a guy that, that would have, could have started some trouble. This typical uh, guy started out with saying, well, isn't that stuff you guys do, isn't that all fake and all that? Which, you know, if they, you know, our reaction to that in those days was always defiant and kind of uh, anger uh, being insulted like that. You know, because, and there was, there was a purpose. Because if you didn't do that, if you admitted to it, you were letting someone insult you. And if you had heat, you know, now you're saying, well, I got heat, you're mad at me, but I'm not even tough enough to stick up for myself. So you leave yourself very vulnerable. So you almost have to defend yourself. And, and in, terms, in terms of verbally, you got to tell them to F off or, well, Buddy Colt, uh, rest in peace, Buddy. Uh, he had the experience. He'd been, he'd, been a, a, he'd been working a while before he got hurt. He was one of the top heels everywhere but in certain i mean not his whole career but at this stage in his career he was one of the top heels mm-hmm. certainly in florida 
he was earning enough money to buy a twin-engine plane the money crashed and crippled himself but one of this little pipsqueak came in there's four or five other guys hanging around looking in a couple inside three or four of them outside and we can hear them mumbling and murmuring and all this and it didn't sound real positive and this this one guy said something about about it being fake and buddy said well the guy said well like that sleeper that's faking it well buddy said well let me show you and he put the guy to sleep and you know the guy got where he needed to be buddy was sitting down i think the guy got down in front of him got down on his knees buddy put the sleep on and put him out and so uh you know when he woke him up it took all the tension that could have gone two ways people would have gotten really pissed off or they right. could have just said well but it went the way it w- went the way i'm glad it did because we didn't have to fight or run i just remember bearcat being in that situation and being a class act you know he was never you know he was uh strong yeah, very strong and formidable looking in a situation like that. I mean, I would hate I would hate to think of myself in a situation where, like in Iraq, for example, where, you know, you're the only American there and everybody else is, you know, is Iraqi and they'll hate you. Right. Uh, just for being American. And now you're Bearcat and you're the only black man there and they hate you because you're black. So he, he, he showed a lot of class and I just wanted to tell that story because I think the story itself is interesting. Uh, one of the, you talk about a nightmare for for wrestlers, the heels, you know, to get stuck in a situation like that where, you know, on a regular, on a typical Friday night, these guys wouldn't have been still out. You know, they they wouldn't be driving around town waiting for this for midnight for the season to open. They'd be in the bar or somewhere. They wouldn't be at running around town to where the word the word could get out that we were that we were stuck there. So. Yeah. Yeah, so now well, uh, we cool. I didn't even have bear cut out, cat on my list, but man, that was uh, I wasn't going to stop you. That's like, kind of like the Don Fargo thing. It wasn't anywhere near the Don Fargo thing, but it's like, well, it wasn't <laughs> on the on the docket for today. But man, it, once you got going, I was like, hey, I don't have a problem with this, and it fits in. It was in Florida, but I mean, just in general, I wouldn't have stopped you there because that's pretty cool, you know. And you got to respect guys who just I don't know if it was love for the business, love for that money they were making, or what the case may be, the camaraderie, whatever the deal is. You got to respect guys like Bearcat and some of the other, you know, early African Americans that really worked against the grain to, and just like you said, just strong-willed people that just fought the good fight to, you know, make a make a buck and and uh, really help with the history as well. Yeah, one my uh, my first book, Deathmatch, Bearcat's one of the main characters uh, who who faces this uh, this rookie that I've, I've got breaking out. I'm using. Uh, my own experience is it's it's uh, fiction based on fact, loosely based on fact. But Bearcat, I thought enough of Bearcat. He was one of the guys that I I had in the dressing room and one of the main characters in the book. So uh, yeah, I thought a lot of him. He was uh, he was a good guy. I, I liked awesome. him a lot. Very yeah, cool. I liked I liked him a lot. I respected him. You know, you're in the South. Don't get me wrong. I don't I don't hold anybody, no matter what you have to do to make a living. But a lot of the a lot of the black wrestlers in the South, first of all, uh, there weren't many. Bearcat was one of the guys who was willing to be a heel, and Ernie Ladd was the other. And I, I got all the ad- admiration and respect in the world for guys going in a place where you know that there's a lot of people out there who hate you just for just on sight because right. you you know you're you're well, uh, you're black uh, and. 
to go in there and you know and make interviews like Ernie did. I talked about it before. Yes. Of making interviews <laughs> like, hey, white boy, come on down, I'll kick your butt. And then Bearcat been out there and being a manager and doing it. I mean, he's on television and everything else, getting that heat. Yeah, I had, all, I had all respect in the world for those guys. The irony of this, Bob, is uh, another one of the uh, names on the uh, list here. Today we're going to be talking about almost the opposite end of, of what you're t- talking about right now. And, and Bearcat, right? We're not going to get there yet, but um, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about if you don't know already before this show concludes. <laughs> well, are you going to maul me if I don't? <laughs> well, I guess you know exactly where we're going to go, but we're not getting there yet because uh, something a little more lighter before before we get there. I fast forward a little bit into your career here. I was noticing at least a half a dozen times over the months of February and March of 1970, you wrestled a fellow by the name of Frank Hickey. Uh, would you like to tell everyone out there Frank's second job, Bob? Well, one of the uh, derivative or descriptive names that he had was Spaceman. That's Spaceman, <laughs> Spaceman Frank Hickey, which was was very uh, very appropriate. Spaceman. Yeah. Why don't that, you describe that, him to the people? Well, first of all, the boys talked about him. You know, he was he was such a character that. Uh, the guys would love. The guys always love telling stories, so they were talking about him as being this really eccentric character. And the first time I saw him, I came into a uh, a dressing room, and I was Fort Pierce for it. And uh, there's a newspaper everywhere on the floor, on the on the benches. And uh, Frank, uh, this guy, uh, had on a <laughs> bright red the top and blue tights and uh, purple uh, shorts and uh, had on a, uh, like an aviator's hat that was yellow, uh, was, was still putting out newspaper. Uh, he had, he was a germaphobe and he didn't, you know, he didn't want to touch anything. Don't forget the uh, cape. You know, we, yeah, that's right. He had a cape on <laughs> and, uh, you know, this guy looked to be about six years old. Uh, he wasn't very big. He was about five ten, five. No, he wasn't even that tall. He was like five nine. He was very friendly, nice guy. I'd never, never, I'd never, I'd heard of him. I'd never, I knew he, I knew, I'd seen what the card was. So, I mean, I knew, but he never came to TV. As far as I know, never was on TV in Florida. If he was, it wasn't while I was there. But, so I'd never, I'd never seen him before. Uh, And he was only booked on these, on spot shows occasionally. You're looking for someone new and different to book, and maybe you don't have anybody else available. He's one of the guys on your list. Yeah, I was working with, and you know, we, I would talk. I, he and I were the only ones in the dressing room for a while before anybody else got there. I usually got there early. I was working in the office, and he, and he was, he got there early himself. Every show, the couple shows I was on with him, he was there when I got there, and we were the first two there. So anyway, when we go out to the ring, it's a National Guard armory, but it's an Air National Guard armory, and we're in that ring and we're being introduced and uh, uh, Stu Schwartz was a referee and, you know, here's Frank. He's got the cape on. He's got the aviator cap on, the one with the, uh, like, Amelia Earhart. We're like, it's like a skull cap, you know, he's got the strap on the chin. And 55 and years cape. old at the time too, Bob. Was he? he yeah, was he was. He looked, uh... Yeah, he looked it. And, and, you know, I mean, he was a nice guy. Uh, again, he wasn't, he wasn't babbling or raving or anything. He, he was, uh, you know, he just was a serious character. It was a great gimmick, you know, because everybody would talk. I mean, it was so outrageous. Everybody was talking. Boys loved to talk about it, and he was a visual sight. 
Um, show business. Well, a show business. We kind of mentioned this off air, but I just said the ludicrousy in wrestling, only in wrestling, can a spaceman wrestle a, an Olympian? Just amazing <laughs> what, what you get in professional wrestling. <laughs> yes. 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 Or an uh, uh, Olympian can wrestle a lady wrestler or a little person wrestler. Sure. And it can be it's acceptable. People will buy it. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's a great business, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but tremendous. anyway, uh, I'm trying. I mean, I'm not uh, thinking about cracking up or anything because I took it serious. Oh, we got to have a match, and <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't sure uh, we we were I wasn't going to go beat him in ten seconds or anything. We had to have a match of some kind. I didn't know what he was capable of doing. I don't remember if I, I think I was still a babyface. Pretty sure. It doesn't yeah, matter. You were a baby face here in '70. Yeah, for sure. So I was, I was curious what he was going to do to try to get heat on me because I was, you know, much younger. But anyways, uh, we've come to the center of the ring, and Stu Schwartz has got a, you know, he's got one. I'm on his left, Frank's on his right, and Stu looks at me, and he's, you know, he as he's checking my hand, he's checking my fingernails and all that. He, he, he just he, as I look at him, he he raises his eyebrows and he looks up a little bit. I look up where he's looking, and right above the ring, this is an Air Guard National Guard Armory. There's this miniature plane there. It's about eight <laughs> feet long. And Stu said, well, look, I guess we're seeing how Frank, how Frank got here tonight. And uh, I lost it. I, Stu had hold of both my hands. I, I ripped my right hand out of his. and put, Otherwise, I was going to bray laughter right out to his face. Right. And when, uh, somebody said, well, Bob Root must have the most ticklish hands in the business. All Schwarzenegger was touching me, he burst into laughter. I had to cover my mouth because, you know, this is serious business. You know, I've, I've got a guy out here for all I know. He's got a, a space gun under that suit. He's sure. going to pull out and blow me into molecules. <laughs> there you go. So I was supposed, I was supposed to be taking it serious here. Uh, <laughs> because that so sounds like I, a serious situation. Oh, it was, oh, and, you know, and Stu, Stu Schwartz had a great, great sense of humor. And, uh, uh, yeah, so, yeah, that was, I had, I had to fight, I had to really, and, you know, when you have, the, when you're young in the business and, or any new venture, you have that kind of uh, the energy built up that it's really, if you, if you do lose it, it, like towards laughter, you'll just go way overboard because it's kind of a nervous release. And uh, I was definitely there. The other time, uh, uh, while we're talking about breaking up in the ring, I might as well tell about the other time I did it. I was working with a guy that went as Oki Shakina. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a, a Hispanic wrestler. Uh, I'm not sure of his uh, true name, but he wrestled as Oki Shakina. He had me in a headlock, I, but I was looking up, and, and he, he was in the headlock, and uh, Sonny Myers was the referee, and he said... Uh, he said, you know, it's 10 2. And I said, 10 to what? He said, 10 to your own affairs. This is a, this is a horseshit match. <laughs> and I cracked up. And in order to hide it, I, what I had to do was I had to turn my face and put it in Oki's side to hide that I was, because my arms, he had my arms blocked. Right. I couldn't cover my own face. So I had to put my face in his side to hide the fact that I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, He's laughing like a maniac. Well, he's ticklish. 
Okay, stick with <laughs> So when I'm laughing into his side, I'm tickling the hell out of him. He lets go of the headlock. He's scooting on his butt trying to get away from me. Oh, my God. I'm hanging on to him for dear life because if he gets away from me, everybody's going to see I'm laughing. Why am I laughing hysterically in the ring when this guy's got me a headlock? You know, we're going to be exposing the business. So I'm <laughs> hanging on for dear life. He's sitting on his butt, and he's digging in his feet, and he's dragging his butt away from me as fast as he can as he can move. We did about two laps around the ring like that. I mean, I would give anything to have that on tape, on video, because <laughs> that had to be most ridiculous. People had to say, well, you know, even wrestlers are going to say, man, I've seen some weird hush watch. I've never seen that one before. Yeah. Well, but, it certainly didn't make the match any mean, better at that point. Wait, <laughs> you remember the one I told about Sputnik? Uh, yeah. Danny Hodge grabbing his ankle yeah, yeah, and yeah. squeezing it, and Sputnik flapping his arms like he's trying to fly away and going, yeah, I yeah. quit, I quit. Yeah. Well, this had to be the same thing. I mean, people think, what is Root doing? Is he Root biting the guy? Right. What, what, is, the, what is happening here? What, what's going on here? Yeah. There was an Oki Chikina before him who was much earlier in, in wrestling history, but I think that one, the one you're referring to, he, he wrestled some as Pedro Zapata as well. Right, but, uh, right. I know exactly who you're talking about from that time period, so <laughs> very cool. Uh, but I wanted, to, I wanted to, just for anybody out there that, was little little has any interest maybe never heard of the spaceman frank hickey prior to now and they're like wait a minute there was a there was a wrestler in the 60s and 70s that professed to be a spaceman yes absolutely and uh look no further there are pictures online from his career but actually bob there's video footage of frank hickey uh much later uh in his career after retiring say 25 years maybe longer he pops up randomly on an episode of memphis wrestling in 1993, I think he was like 78 years old or something like that. And he actually, if you want to call it, uh, wrestles a match. You can imagine how it <laughs> went. But imagine Frank Hickey reappearing in the 90s, wearing the same exact costume that he wore back in the 60s and even early 70s there. But it is out there. It's uh, USWA TV from 1993. Spaceman wow. Frank Hickey, guys, go, go uh, look it up yourselves. Uh, sadly, now, he did that in May of 93. He passes away in December of 93. But you have to think... With a character like that, he probably enjoyed that last ride into the sun before he got, quote-unquote, beamed up to a higher being. <laughs> well, well now, now you got me laughing. You talk about a guy passed away. You know, this is macabre, Bob Roof. You talk have... about somebody dying, he laughs. No, that part, yeah. But, you know, that was a good way for him to go, I think, uh, to have that last uh, like last little little uh, time in the, in the, you know, in the spotlight, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. He was a nice guy. I mean, I I liked him. I again, I wasn't around him much, but uh, we talked. You know, we were in the dressing room together and I chatted with him. I didn't ask for you know his, his whole background or anything, but he was he was a nice enough man. Cool. And you know, he was a character. People were talking about him, so there were a lot of guys that didn't have the wherewithal or the thought process or the the genius or whatever to come up with a gimmick that could get a book in their, when they're in their 70s or 80s. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So you got to give so, the guy credit, don't you? You? Say, you say Frank was a nice man, but off here you also refer to somebody else as a nice man. And you this blew me away because I hadn't even realized that he pops up here just for a handful of matches around this time period in March of 1970 as well, heading back to March 24th and the armory in Tampa, Bob Roop defeated a fellow by the name of Bobby Heenan 
and I had to, I, I had to ask you off. I said, did you, do you remember working or being around Bobby? And you said, oh yeah, he was a great guy. And I wanted you to, if you could share maybe a little bit here about your thoughts on one of the most legendary, I mean, not just wrestlers, but let's just say performers, managers, everything, commentators, hosts. I mean, he could do it all. Your memories of Bobby Heenan. Yeah, Bobby was a great guy who, uh, he could do it all. And, you know, he had a, his life took a really unfortunate turn. He got sick and, you know, he just, uh, yeah, my, you know, I can't, I can't say what would have been better, but I'm, I'm sure I wish he hadn't so had to suffer so long, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, you know, uh, good guy. Uh, uh, he was good. He was a good enough talent. We wrestled in Tampa, I wrestled a match against him in Tampa. And what stood out on, on it was that he, Bobby was light, uh, was blonde and he was light skinned. Um, you know, he wasn't swarthy or, you know, he didn't have like a, a dark tone. He had like right. very, very white skin. Yeah. Uh, not, he wasn't albino, but he was light skinned. Sure. And he had come down to Florida. Apparently he spent at least an hour or two hours out in the pool or somewhere because he, he was sunburned. He came out and, uh, he had on a singlet and short and tight, but his legs and his arms and his face and his back were just, I'm talking beet red. Uh, you know, he was, he was burned. He wasn't blistered. Oh, (laughs) you know, and Bobby, you know, he didn't, uh, he, he didn't complain afterwards. I mean, I didn't do any, I didn't, you know, the wrestlers would have thought it funny to slap him, you know, do the, right. Take advantage of it. Oh yeah. After the chest four or five times. But no, I didn't, you know, I tried to take care of him because the thing is that Bobby was good enough. Now here I am an Olympian, big, you know, much more muscular than Bobby much bigger. And yet he, he was credible enough that we were able to have a match that when I beat him, it meant something, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, and he wasn't known as a wrestler. He was a, basically a manager, but he would come to Florida. And in fact, it just it occurred to me why, why he wrestled when he came to Florida, because there's no way really he could manage. So uh, wrestlers would come. One of the great things about working in Florida was in the wintertime, Guys would come down from up north. They would come down for a couple of weeks uh, or a month or whatever, and they would get booked for, uh, you know, at least one match, sometimes two or three. Right. And what they could do is that way by working and getting a paycheck there, they could deduct their vacation. They could deduct it, uh, you know, as a working. Uh, they could put take it, everything, their hotel, their cost if they flew or if they uh. drove. Okay. All their costs they could deduct from their income, you know, from their their taxes as an expense. So they would, you know, a lot of guys. I was telling you privately earlier. Uh, Larry Henning came down, and I, you know, I had seen Larry on cover of magazines for you know several times, and uh, you know he was very impressive looking, great big, you know, burly, nasty, you know, nice look, nice guy. But uh, you know, he was a he was a, a formidable looking guy. And uh, I worked with him, I think, in Jacksonville, and uh, he put me over right in the middle of the ring, which he should have. But I was young in the business, and I didn't expect that kind of thing. But, you know, to beat guys like that, that leads into something there. We'll we'll go get into it later about the reason I was booked with some of the people I worked with was just for that purpose, was to try to get me over to where I meant something there in Florida that they were going to try to use me as quickly as they could to try to help draw money. Yeah. And Bobby was, uh, was a sweet guy. 
I saw him when I was uh, on top, and I saw him when I was, uh, you know, not on top anymore. And he was just as friendly and kind and as sweet as he was in in either situation. Our fortunes had reversed, for example, where uh, he was he was really making it big, and and my fortunes had declined. Now, when I say my fortunes declined, the last time I saw him, I was an agent for Turner in 1990, mm-hmm. and uh, so I don't I think it was Baltimore. I don't remember. I saw him on an elevator, and uh, I was getting off. I was getting on, and but just you know, same thing. Sweet guy. Hello, Bobby. How you doing? And, so, yeah, he's a guy that it's nice. You got people you remember that you can, you know, when you remember them, you, it's, you know, something nice happens in your yeah. inside. Sure. You know, you, you especially so, so many years apart. And like you said, Bobby's success by that point, if he was, a, you know, a dick deep down, he could have easily used it by that point. He had managed Andre to WrestleMania and, and everything by by then. But uh, yeah, that, that's really cool that no matter whether you, whether it was 1970 or 1990, it's the same guy, a really good guy. That's good to hear. Well, you know, there's another factor that is psychologically interesting. Bobby understood that it was a work, that no matter what you seem to be, you're not really that. You know, you've got a role you're playing. Right. And, and that role might be more important. You know, you are supposedly this person, but you can be replaced. And, you know, it's not going to last forever. You know, enjoy it and be glad for it and like the money you're making and doing it. But don't don't cut your bridges to everybody that you you met on your way getting up there. Right. And saying, okay, I'm above all you people now. Look at me now. Uh, I got no time for you people anymore because I've made it big now. Uh, because, again, we're talking about something. That's one thing if you're if you're fighting for real, if you're a you know, whatever, a mixed martial artist or something, right. and sure. you're fighting for real, or you're a singer or whatever, and you're competing and for real, and you make it, well, I'm not saying you can go ahead and look down on people, but I'm saying, yeah, you can be proud of your accomplishments because it can't be taken away from you, just although you can lose your voice or you can get old, uh, which happens to everybody, and, and you can lose your position. So, yeah, but Bobby was always the same. He was a the, he were he was a real person. You weren't dealing with somebody that put on a persona. The guys that wore their Russian persona wherever they went. I mean, when you're private with them. Sure. Uh, and when we when we get into dusty roads, we'll talk about that a little bit. I got a, <laughs> I got a really interesting thing I want to share with you when we get into with everybody out there. I mean, it's not it's not a put down. It's just interesting. Uh, work, work the gimmick, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So here's a here's a guy who worked two gimmicks, if you want to call it that. Uh, up next here, I noticed you working quite a bit in the month of June, specifically here in 1970. I wanted to discuss this this week. Kind of a, a dual life led by a fellow by the name of Larry Hamilton. Some people know him, know him as the Missouri Mauler, who was a legendary heel in some territories. But I'm looking at just want to read a couple of the matches off to you here because. It's, I don't know. I don't know that you recall. I don't know that anything really transpired on television to set anything up, but there's a lot of pretty big matches here involving you and Larry throughout June for, for whatever reason in 1970. I don't have a lot of input outside of the matches were booked. And it's uh, in Jacksonville, you do a couple of matches with them. June 18th, Bob Roop goes to a draw with the Missouri Mauler. Following week, June 25th in Jacksonville, it's Eddie Graham, Hiro Matsuda, and Bob Roop taking on 
Thunderbolt Patterson, El Lobo, which was Luke Graham under a hood, and the Missouri Mauler. Uh, the following day, Tallahassee, June 26th, it's Briscoe, Jack Briscoe and Bob Roop versus Thunderbolt Patterson and the Missouri Mauler. And finally, June 29th in Orlando, another six-man, Don Carson, Hiro Matsuda, and Bob Roop versus Thunderbolt Patterson, Dale Lewis, and the Missouri Mauler in an elimination match. Now, I don't know if there was a reason behind all these matches all at once, because you weren't really working in before or after this time period, but uh, we, we got into a little more discussion about the Mauler off-air as well, and we'll talk talk about that. But first, I, I was hoping we could talk about uh, the wrestling uh, performer, the, the uh, wrestler, uh, Larry Hamilton. Well, you know, he was, you say Mauler, you know, he, that's the guy that's like just punching all the time and, you know, never, never left up. That was, a, it was a good name, but he didn't do that. But he also, you didn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't a guy that did a lot of high spots, you know, you get a headlock on me, shoot you off and you hit him with a tackle and then you uh, arm drag him or whatever. He wasn't that kind of heel. Right. He was more of a power feel you out, club you down type of heel. The thing that whatever he was, was I had good matches with him. And it didn't matter if he went over or if I went over, even if he beat me, which and when I first started, he did. When I was green and I was learning how to even just, you know, basically make my way around the ring a little bit, uh, he would go ahead and go over. I'm not sure if he penned me or DQ. I don't know. He might have. Uh, he was, you know, he was one of the top heels. But uh, the matches were always good. I didn't have to worry about coming out of there and people going, first of all, he was close to my size. I was big enough that, uh, you know, uh, it didn't, he wasn't someone half my size who made me look, you know, like, like that was, let's go back to Bobby Heenan for a second. I was so much bigger than Bobby. Mm. The fact that he could make himself credible on a match against me uh, is to his credit. You know, he was talented. Now, Larry Hamilton, the Missouri Mahler, uh, was, uh, was, again, bigger and, and he looked up far, and he was a tough guy. He was, uh, you know, he grew up hard. He, uh, he's a brother of Jody Hamilton, uh, the one of the assassins, the legendary assassins. Right. And both those guys, are, both those guys are tough guys. You know, I mean, they're those guys. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to cross them. I wouldn't want. I want to. I want to be caught with their wife or anything. Uh, or I mean, I wouldn't even think about that. But I, I wouldn't. I just wouldn't want to be have them mad at me because you know you got a guy that. If he decides you want to try to hurt you, uh, even if you can protect yourself, you're going to get hurt at least a little bit. So uh, that's the kind of guy you just don't want to mess with. But the thing is, we had good matches, and I always respected that. But I didn't care whether guys, first of all, people's politics, you know, you don't talk about race, religion. Uh, you don't talk about that stuff in, in company. And so, you know, we didn't talk about that kind of stuff in the dressing room. And uh, if there was racial bias in the dressing room, you didn't see it. Uh, guys were conditioned or something. They were smart enough not to show it. Because, you know, you, you had to work with everybody. You know, you had to work with, you know, whatever. You know, blacks, you know, uh, Indian from like India, Pakistan, Chinese, Japanese. Because it was, uh, and that was one of the things that, that made, to me, made a great card is to have a bunch of different, not just standard, like all white American guys, uh, have a mixed card, you know, with all different kinds of races and creeds and, and, and backgrounds. 
in it. And that, that's what made pro wrestling kind of, you know, to me, made it a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the Mahler was, uh, uh, he was very uninformed in terms of racial uh, understanding. And he grew up in a, a very racist society when or his, his brother wrote a book and described some of that himself. Jody Hamilton was, wrote a book with Scott Teal. That's a good book. You, people, if you got That's you a know, great book. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. You can go to Crowbar Press. Crowbar, like a crowbar you use to jack open a trunk or something. Press. And uh, you can order Scott. Scott Teal's got a couple dozen really, really great books. And uh, Larry Hamilton is, is one of them. Uh, but, Crowbar, uh, uh, like the uh, the weapon that Bob Root may or may not have used on Dick Slater <laughs> in a bar one time, but we're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> get back to uh, Larry Hamilton. <laughs> I'll have you know it wasn't a crowbar. It was a 17-inch leather sap okay. that I bought, I I bought from, the chief, <laughs> from the, the chief of police in Fort Lauderdale was a security there matches and uh he he uh, he he so he gave it to me as a gift one time so uh yeah that's what dick slater can't, uh can't wait to get ran, there <laughs> ran into but uh well i mean he was trying to he was trying to hurt me at the time oh i know i i didn't go looking for him but right. anyway uh back to larry <laughs> yeah yeah larry larry was uh very very uh, uh ultra right conservative uh in his beliefs as racial makeup. And now you never saw it in a dressing room, but uh, in Florida, when you worked in Florida, you had to go to Puerto Rico uh, and you had to go to the Bahamas. Now, Puerto Rico, uh, I don't remember Larry ever being too upset about that, but uh, he hated uh, going to the Bahamas because uh, high, not, every, not everybody in the Bahamas is black. Uh, there's mixed, uh, there's people... Uh, uh, there's a whole melange of colors from black to, to brown to uh, white that are Bahamians. There, you know, there's a lot of most of the population or a good part of it is black. And, and uh, Larry Hamilton, Larry just, uh, he grew up uh, being told that, uh, you know, he was to hate those people or not respect them. Uh, he didn't want to be around them. And the thing was, when we flew in there uh, on a private plane, uh, it wasn't a problem because you didn't have to go through customs. But when you flew in commercial, you had to go through customs. And now, especially uh, when I first started in 1969, the Hamas were still a British territory. What did you say? Commonwealth? Commonwealth. There you go. They were, that's the right word. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they were a Commonwealth uh, country for, the, for Great Britain. Well, several years into my career, a Bahamian named Leonard Pendling was looking for Bahamian independence and created enough of a stir. And the other thing is maybe the Bahamas were too expensive for uh, you know Great Britain to maintain, so they gave over the Commonwealth and let the Bahamians elect their own government. They had their, this Leonard Pendling was their first prime minister. Well, what happened after that was that Instead of when you and when you went in there uh, and you went through customs, instead of having British customs agents, you had Bahamians, and unfortunately, the people that that you, we first had uh, were rude. Uh, they would order you around, and you know, and uh, I saw bunches of people who would come in there and be treated so rudely 
at customs, they turn around and go back and get on a flight. They came in there to gamble at, at the casino on Paradise Island. And they were so distasteful just trying to get in the country. They went and got on a plane, flew down to San Juan to gamble, down to Puerto Rico, rather than go through all the hassle of being treated. Okay. Well, I didn't like them. I mean, I, I wasn't, I didn't have any racial bias, but I didn't know. Nobody likes being treated rudely and sure. being ordered around. Well, uh, Mahler just, oh, it just, you talk about, you know, one thing is just having to, having to deal with it at all. But being ordered around, it was just, oh, it was just a nightmare for him. But he managed, you know, I mean, he was he was working there. So he had to he had to take the bookings. He had to go there. He had to put up with it. And he did. Now, one time after they, the, the Bahamians got safe self-rule, I wasn't on the show that time, but he got he wasn't allowed in the country. And uh, he got sent back and he didn't mind that at all. But uh, he had to get back on a plane and go back, you know, take his return flight back. Instead of the next day, he had to take it the same day. And what happened is uh, when the customs agent asked for his passport, he uh, said something. Larry gave it to him, and uh, the guy asked him a question that Larry didn't understand. He said, well, listen, man, I, what, can, what can I tell you? And because he called him man, the guy, I guess the guy got offended, like if he, maybe he called him a boy or something. Okay. Uh, and that was just uh, that's what Larry said. That was his story. Sure. Now, years, a couple years later, a few years later, uh, we were in Freeport, and Larry and I, we had a there was a hotel. Lester Walsh was the one that was the one from the office, the Florida office, that was running the shows that down there at that time. Mm -hmm. He flew us in there on his plane, uh, and we were staying at a hotel that they had arranged through the Florida wrestling office for us to stay at. And uh, there's one of these places that had like four or five floors. Uh, they all had uh, doors facing an inner courtyard. There's probably a hundred rooms. Larry and I and Dick uh, Steinborn were in a room and we were telling wrestling stories and we were drinking some rum after the show one Friday or Saturday night. And, uh, you know, we we're telling stories and they had the, they had the windows they had in the rooms a jealousy, I think they're called windows, where there's a little handle you can turn in a circle, and the windows will like slowly unfold to open them and close them. So it's like five or six, uh, three inch or four inch wide panes of glass will open up or shut. Right. Well, they're they're not noise proof, you know. I mean, the the noise can get out. Well, we're telling stories and we're drinking and we're laughing. It got pretty loud, probably. And at uh, I don't know, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Larry went out to get ice. Uh, he was coming back, and all, all of a sudden we heard this. Uh, I can't say what he said, but it, it had uh, about nine or ten really, really good, the most the effective swear words in a row about uh, Cuban something or other. Come on down here, I'll kill you or whatever. And uh, apparently he was on his way back from getting the, the ice, and a, a Bahamian a uh, man of color came out on the on the terrace above him. He was like uh, eight eight or nine feet above Larry. Larry couldn't get it, couldn't get his hands on him if he wanted to. But the guy came out and said, "Would uh, hey, how about holding it down? We're trying to get some sleep in here." Right. And uh, and that was enough. And uh, I don't know. Larry said something back to him. Then the guy said something back, and all of a sudden he's a Cuban and about nine or ten different swear words. 
Well, uh, as a result, we all got kicked out of the hotel. Uh, not that night, but when we checked out, uh, and when Lester Welsh checked out, uh, he was told that uh, we were in our, our our business was no longer a welcome there. So I guess they were giving us a raid or whatever. I don't know. Well, Lester had a had a didn't like me. I don't know why. Uh, I wasn't in love with him either, but I didn't. You know, I tried not to show it. But he went back to uh, Eddie Graham. Back to he went back when we got back to the office. He went in and told Eddie Graham that I had gotten us kicked out of the hotel. So I get a call from Eddie, uh, and it's from the office. And Eddie's, oh, his, his voice is cold. It's like ice. Hey, uh, uh, I want you to cut. You know, I mean, he's like, oh, God, I want you to, I mean, just vicious. Come to my my place. Meet me at my place, my house. Well, I so I, I have no idea what it's about. But I go to his house. He's got, he's out in the back. He's got he's living right on a canal. He's got a boat, a little dock out there with his boat. It's one of those boats you can hang up on these, whatever. Yeah, he's got straps so he can lift it out of the water. And uh, he was back there sunning. And so when I came, as I come in, I expected him to be this frosty guy, sounded like he wanted to bite my head off. But when I when I came up, he's all smiles and you know, because uh, I look at it now. Eddie, Eddie had seen me take guys that were the best wrestlers, amateur wrestlers around uh, Tampa and just handle them. And I mean, uh, take Matsuda down 25 times in a row without him being able to do a thing to me. So, you know, he knew I could do whatever I wanted to with him if I, if I you know, if I lost it for some reason. So Eddie didn't want to, they really didn't want to take any chances of pissing me off, although he wouldn't have really had to worry about it. But he didn't know that. The reason that he was so nasty on the phone was because Lester was listening. Lester was in the office with him when he called oh, me. Okay. And the reason that he had me meet him at his house was because Lester wasn't at his house when I got there. Right. And then, and then Eddie said, and then Eddie, Eddie said, told me, he said, yeah, uh, Lester came back, told me you guys, you know, had a, you know, had a problem. But he said, you know, I talked to the Mahler and I talked to Larry and he said, you know, he told me it was his fault. You didn't have anything to do with it. And, he, you know, he said he's willing to leave. He said just he can just say that, you know, his mother's sick and all that. And uh, he'll, he can leave today. And he said that's not necessary. But the reason I'm telling that story, it shows us what kind of guy that Larry Hamilton was. You know, he was a stand-up guy. He wasn't going to let me take the blame or Dick Steinborn. Uh, it's it's we so were weird just... how many different dynamics a human being can have because at the same time he's – that is a stand-up thing to do. Hey, this was—he didn't have to go and take, you know, take the blame for that. You—you uh, you were already given the blame. <laughs> so, but he—he he went well, up yeah. himself and said, "Hey, I—I I did it and everything." But at the same time, we—you know—it's hard to look past some of the, uh, you know, the dark uh, side of Larry Hamilton as well, though. Well, yeah, but you, back just—we'll get to that in just a second. But sure. back to back to his uh, his his attitude about that. This guy's given up a. Like six, seven, eight hundred buck a week job. Yeah, that's a, that's a where he, he was huge. He was main eventing, semi main eventing there. Yeah, yeah, maybe more. But I mean, at least that much. You're talking about now in today's dollars, that's like two two grand, twenty five hundred. You know, that's what he was giving up to give quit his job. Now he was going to be able to go somewhere else to work, but he wasn't going to start out making seven, eight hundred bucks a week. He was going to have to work his way up to that. Yeah, I mean, you you know, when you're leaving one area 
uh, you're, you're even thinking about leaving, you start looking around, you start calling around the country, people you know, wrestlers or whoever, and find out somebody who needs somebody like you. Somebody, if you want to work as a single heel, somebody needs a single heel on top now. Well, if you're underneath and you don't confident about being on top, you don't feel like you can handle it, then you say, yeah, I'm, I need to, I'm, I'm working underneath, but you got any room for, you know, people underneath? Uh, and you might even have people in your own office, a booker in your own office, help get your book somewhere else if, uh, if, they, you, know, if you have a good relationship with them. Right. But when you're, when you're a veteran, you call, you look around yourself. Who needs, you know, who needs somebody? Because you want a spot. You want a place that you can go and make some money. Yeah. You don't want to, because you got to move. You got to move. You got to go yourself. Usually you got to go first to see if you're going to make it. And then once you do, then you have your family come. And you, of course, moving expenses, all that. Getting a new place in your new area, all that. And, uh, and making sure you do make it. Uh, because if you don't, then, and you moved everybody out there, then that all that. And you have to leave within a few months, and all that money was actually wasted. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider, you know, in terms of finances. So for Larry to take all those things into consideration and be willing to take the blame himself and totally absolve, because, you know, Dick and I, in fact, I think I brought the rum. Steinborg and I were drinking, too. We were the one making the noise, too, right. that the guy complained about. So, you know, we were just as much at fault as Larry was. But he's going to take all the blame. And see, that to me is a stand-up guy. Now, I, I already mentioned before about him being racist. Right. Uh, yeah, and so I don't approve of that. I mean, I, I'm not racist myself. I told you a story earlier about what I heard. I never saw it, but I right. heard that he and Homer Odell, who was a manager, they, they used to, they were both ultra-conservatives to where... Uh, they would uh, put on uh, uh, Nazi SS uniforms, the black uniforms, in the house. They wouldn't go out in public with them. They'd put them on in, in one of their houses or, you know, I don't know if they took turns or whatever. But they would wear them around the house and, uh, you know, they were imitating uh, Nazi monsters, you know, horrible people. You know, murdered six million or more Jews. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, were, they had some serious problems, you know. I mean... Uh, psychologically with the, you know, hating, living a life where you hate a bunch of people just on sight. Yeah, right. you know, it's not, it's not good for your psyche or for your no. emotional stability, you know, to have that kind of a, it's like a, a wound, you know, it's like a sore in your, in your psyche. It's just festering. It's like a cancer. Right. And, uh, that's why we haven't gotten to, to Chris Colt yet, but, or not in oh, detail. We but, will be. Well, but the one of the reasons I wanted to learn about the gay life with Chris Colt was because I had not bias, but I had I had some thoughts that weren't that were negative that because I didn't know that much about it. I wanted to learn about the life and find out, you know, what I could. I wanted to be educated about it. And that's you know, and that's that's all you can do. Right. Larry Hamilton, I I know he had character. What him taking the blame for uh, our incident shows he's got character. Uh, it's like a, you know, it's like a, a mixed bag. You know, there's, I do know that I saw him, a couple guys waiting with knives down at the end of the, on his way out to the car. You know, he had a gun in his bag. He didn't even take it out. He just walked right through, right up to him and they scattered and backed away and looked like they were, you know, they were getting ready to run. 
because he didn't, you know, he didn't show. And I, I asked him later, I said, doesn't it make you nervous? Are you worried? He said, yeah, but he said, you can't let them see you. You're scared, Bob. Right. He said, they'll, you know, you know, I know where there are other hills that wouldn't go up there. Seems to like be quite I, the tool, tool of the trade back then. Uh, you've, you've learned that by quite a few guys by that point. You can't show you're scared. No, no. You, oh, you can't. If you do, I mean, you're just asking. You're asking sure, to get beat. Sure, right. You're just saying, yeah, come on up. Come on and beat me up. Uh, you know, you might as well pretend you're going to kill them. Uh, you know, make them think twice. If nothing else, I say, okay. Uh, if I was confronted, and I had to happen a couple times, uh, if I was confronted by, you know, two or three guys, I just say, okay. I said, uh, all I can tell you is you're going to get hurt. You might do what you want with me, but uh, one or all of you are going to get hurt bad. And uh, I said, I got enough. To, I, I got enough. And that, that would be enough. And right. I meant it because well, I was you have, scared. you have to mean it. <laughs> I was scared. I said, point, but yeah. yeah, I said, oh, yeah, you guys might be able to do what you want, but well, some one of you, all of you are going to get hurt. Well, I'll and, say this. Uh, in regards to you know this whole situation, real quick, and then you can, if you got anything else you want to touch on here, please do. Okay. Um, but uh, in regards to Larry Hamilton, for those who don't aren't familiar with the name, he, he retired by the, by somewhere around 1981, so he was already working into the the latter half of his career. Actually, by this point, I think he'd already been in the business close to 20 years by this time that you were working with him here, almost 20 years. I know he teamed up with his brother Jody a lot in the 50s, and uh, get this, guys, he's not just some southern heel. He actually uh, main evented Madison Square Garden throughout the 50s. They sold out that place against Antonino Rocca and Miguel Perez. I mean, they were on top out there. And then uh, after that, he goes and works and, you know, sets it on fire in the Mid-Atlantic Territory for Jim Crockett Sr. So he, he was definitely got around. He knew how to work the heel gimmick quite well by the time he ever got to hear Florida with uh, Bob Roop uh, and these stories you're telling and things like that. Now, in regards to what you were talking about with him and Homer O'Dell, that's nothing new. I just want to be clear for those who, again, don't know those names. This isn't something that Bob is creating out of his own mind. He's, it's hearsay to him. He said he's heard these stories. These stories are out there. I mean, Jody Hamilton doesn't really come outright and say these terrible things about his brother in his book. But the stories are, you know, the, the, the basis of it is there. But I, you see a lot of stories online and specifically also about Homer Odell. So these are not secrets. They, they've been out there for decades. So I just wanted to be clear about that. I, I don't know anything by fact, but the stories are certainly out there. Hey, I wrote, I made one trip with uh, Bob Orton Sr. and like three other guys of his generation. I got stuck with them. Unbelievable. They talked about these conspiracies. Oh, these, the, yeah, I, I, this is what was said. The Jews are all going to uprise on a certain day. They're all going to, or the blacks on a certain day, they're all going to pick up a, a gun and come and kill. I mean, just the most unbelievably, incredibly stupid uh, conspiracy <laughs> theory stuff. And they believed it. Right. I mean, I can't believe they were. Uh, yeah, I was ignoring them, pretending I was brain dead. Well, it sounds like they all I, found the right writing partners. So, I mean, outside of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, those guys, <laughs> those guys loved it. I, and they were all, you know, all of them had guns in their bags, which, I, you know, I thought was kind of extreme. I, after I did the thing with Steve Kern's dad, uh, but sure. I had a shotgun and a three fifths of magnum. <laughs> right. I didn't carry, I mean, I didn't carry the shotgun in my bag or on my, you know, slung over my shoulder when I walked into an arena. Uh, <laughs> I, I probably had the three fifty seven in my bag, but 
again, by that time, I'd had a gun or two pointed at me. So, but again, uh, yeah, these guys had uh, a limited, very limited worldview in order to believe. And I'm not trying to insult anybody here, but if you if you believe in, in conspiracies, at least do yourself the benefit of investigating. Uh, see if you can find out more information about what it is you've been told uh, that is happening. And if nowadays, all you need is your phone. Uh, if you're online and your phone, look it up. You can, if you can read, you can find the information right there about what it is you've been told. You know that there's people uh, killing children in a pizza basement, drinking their blood, or stuff like that. That's just <laughs> utterly ridiculous. How could that possibly be happening? And there's no headlines. The people that are in the pizza basement drinking blood have been caught. I mean, it would be that would be the if if that was going on, that would be a headline about twelve inches high in a newspaper every day. Because, you know, of course nothing like that's going on. But some people want to believe that it is. But the only way you can believe that is if you are willing to shut out information. And you know, information is strength. If you know, I mean, knowing what's going on is a big help. And also, who wants to be afraid and unhappy and and worried about you know all these things happening? Life life without that's difficult enough. You don't need all this stuff added on to it. So, all right, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> You're fine. So uh, that was the uh, the curious case of the Missouri Mauler guys. Uh, we're gonna roll on. We're gonna touch on one more name here this week, Bob, before we close out the show. Uh, and that is by the latter half of the summer here in 1970. I saw a name pop up that was, uh, I, I remember, I recalled the name. He didn't get over under this name, but there was a wrestler by the name of Joe Bednarski. And for those who don't know who that is, he would go on to become Polish power. Ivan Putski, originally doing the, the kind of a knockoff of the mighty Igor gimmick in some territories. But eventually he goes up to New York and he gets over there doing also, again, a, a different Ivan Koloff up there. But people know that one more commonplace than than the Igor version that he that he uh, kind of copied. But uh, I just I, I saw this name and I had to go back and ask you. I asked you off air. I said, "Do you know a fellow by the name of Joe Bednarski?" And you knew the name. You knew who that would that would go on to become. So I, I won't spoil anything else. If you got anything else you'd like to talk about right now in regards to Ivan Putski, share it with us, please. Well, I mean that was a very successful gimmick for him, and uh, you know I. I, I um, my hat's off to him. I'm glad, I'm glad he he did well with it. But um, you know, he didn't he didn't handle being successful very well because uh, I found very few people that I ever talked to. First of all, his name doesn't come up because most of the guys are not looking for someone to knock. You talk about people you admire. You know, you talk right. about guys that are get, getting over and oh, we talked to like about Bobby Heenan, for example. You know, you're looking for guys you can say good things about because who wants to be going around knocking people all the time? I mean, you can, what a horrible attitude to have. you got all this nastiness and you got to get out by knocking people. No, you know, uh, Benarski, you know, he, the problem when you and I talked earlier, right, I talked about his habit of uh, eating a lot of garlic and <laughs> not, not bothering even like to clean his breath. You know, I mean, his whole body reeked of garlic, but he wouldn't even like use mouthwash or anything. So that when you when you had to wrestle him, you know, he stunk, and that's very disrespectful. 
Yeah, I'd be like, you know, if you wore the pants and you had a full load in your pants and you went in the <laughs> ring with it, you know, you stink. You know, we smell like <laughs> like shit. And, uh, you know, it's just it totally, if you did that, people go, what, the, what is your problem, you know? What a disrespectful thing to do. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I had an incident where we had a band in, in Tampa invite us to her apartment for to have a couple of beers after a show and listen to some music and very, you know, very nice young lady and uh, three or four of us. And uh, later on, when uh, we had all left, she came to me the next day and told me that uh, uh, she was missing uh, $200 from her wallet. And uh, the only person who had access to her money was Bagnarski. So I made it up to the girl because I'm the one that brought him up there. And I asked him about it, and he denied it. So I'm not saying he did it, but I know that I knew the girl well enough. I know she wasn't telling a lie. She was Mr. Armani. So that's about the worst thing to me that a wrestler can do. If, if I'm not saying he did it, but if right. so anybody did that, that's the worst thing you can do. It's like, because you make everybody look like a scumbag. Right. Uh, you know, all the, yeah, those wrestlers. All you have to do is have one. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, all of you look like, uh, you know, I like can see that. two cents waiting for change, you know. So, uh, no, I wasn't. And again, I told you earlier, when Joe Bonarski was asked to strike a wrestling pose, not a wrestling pose, not a bodybuilding pose, a wrestling pose, he stood up, flexed his biceps, and, and showed his biceps just like he would if you were posing for a, a bodybuilding contest. And I look, I was young in the business. I'd only been around a year or two myself. I mean, it was in the program in the Florida. Jerry Prater put it, it's in the program. I thought, what kind of wrestling pose is that? <laughs> you know, if a guy's posing like that and he's a wrestler, I mean, he doesn't even have his arms in front of him. You can walk up and punch him right in the nose. Of course, that that would become more commonplace with Superstar Graham and and uh, guys like that as time went on there. But I get what you're saying. Strike a wrestling pose. And uh, his background, I I think he was a bodybuilder prior to uh, the wrestling business. So I guess to him, that was wrestling. You know, (laughs) we never saw Ivan Putsky put on a clinic in the ring or anything like that. But uh, it's kind of interesting. You got to work with him early on before he was even given the Putsky character. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think I ever got. I don't remember ever getting a ring with him. But I did. I I beat him, but he was never. I mean, I never. You know what? I was never on a card with him. With him as Putsky, and I never, like, no Japan trips. I I never saw him again, frankly. And I, you know what? I don't mind. Uh, you did team you with know. him here against Ali Bay and Tito Copa in uh, August of '70. So you got in the ring Where? with him. Maybe uh, in uh, looks like. Ooh, I don't have the city down here. That's okay. my fault. That's my fault. Well, but it's, well I, I mean, Ford, so. obviously, but I mean, I don't, I don't know where. Was it Joe Bonarski or was yeah, it? Yeah, no, uh, no, Joe Bonarski. Joe Bonarski. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, well, yeah, I don't remember that. I, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't ever mess with Putsky. Uh, I think I remember that, but right. yeah. Uh, again, I, I, even that aside, the, the, the slovenly thing with, uh, with Putsky, <laughs> that's a work. You know, that's a work. That's what you do when you, uh, you know. Frank Hickey doesn't go home and keep all that stuff in while at he's least, sitting there. Always at least we hope cape, not. Cape, unless he's well, <laughs> totally lost his mind. Keep his hat on, his cape, and all that while he's watching TV at night. I don't think so. So, you know, I mean, uh, you know, you have your ring appearance, you have your gimmick, and you have your personal life. When you're among your peers, 
you should show them respect. And a lot of guys that came from nothing to all of a sudden instant fame and fortune, like Pusky did, Joe Bonarski was nothing. Pusky was really something. So to go and say a month's time for making 300 bucks a week to making two grand a week and then being able to keep it for a number, you know, do it for a number of years, sometimes that small timer's mentality is what you still have in your head, even though you've made it in the big time because you didn't have to work your way up the, up the, up the ladder step by step. You just had, you know, you got a lucky break and you didn't ever grow into it. You know, Joe Benarski might have been named himself Ivan Fusky after that, but it was still a little Joe there behind the, behind the tights. Well, I've always heard uh, Ivan referred to by his colleagues as a natural heel, and a lot of people have said, I don't know why they never turned him heel. Probably Ivan made so much money as a babyface, he knew never to turn heel. I, I think he could have pulled it off, though, from the stories I've heard about him. And I'm not saying, like, to the point where, you know, it's, it was thought per perhaps by this young lady the wrestling fan that maybe it was him who, who took her money because he was the one that had the closest access to her, to her purse at that time. I'm not talking about that kind of a heel. I just mean the, the ego, the character, the, the persona, the way he flashed himself, the way he talked to fans. I, I've heard a lot of stories of him working the, the New York territory at the TV tapings and fans would ask for autographs and, and go up to him and try to speak to him. And he was rather rude with them. If he's working the gimmick, that's the one part he forgot to work was the baby face part. With, with his fans anyway, which is, you know, unfortunate. But I just I thought it would be cool to get an insight as to Ivan Putsky, how he was early on, if if maybe he uh, thought of himself higher than he actually was after he got over. But apparently it was it was to some degree maybe always that way. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You, you never know what's going on in somebody else's head. But, yeah, if you get that now that I've made it, uh, I'm too good for you fans. What a ridiculous attitude that is. <laughs> Who do you think... Where did the money that went into your bank account, where did that come from? Right. It came from these fans you're giving a hard time here, you know, that you're you're showing disrespect for. You're out of your mind. Yeah. Those are the people that are paying your bills, buddy. You better be nice to them. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I, again, I didn't know, I didn't know Bernarski well enough to, to really form a, an educated opinion or, a, you know, one that has any detail to it. I just know that what I did know, I wasn't, and again, I'm not trying to talk down. Uh, he might have absolutely no, in fact, I'm sure he has absolutely no use for me. In fact, if you looked at his career, he probably made maybe two or three times the money I made in my career uh, because he, first of all, he worked a lot longer. But uh, the amount of money made in a career is not in my, that's not my evaluation or my symbol of success. How do you come out of it? You know, how does the rest of your life go? How are you thought of? How do you think of yourself? You know, are you are you able to live with the things you did and or didn't do? Uh, you did you uh, was it worth it to shortchange your family and your friends, not have friends while you're a wrestler? It's very difficult to have a personal life. Right. Um, was it OK to miss all your kids birthdays and all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. You have to you have to add up the cost of what it what you had to pay to do it uh, and then try to figure if it was worth it. In a lot of cases, it wasn't because uh, guys didn't save their money. Uh, they didn't invest anything that was going to, you know, take care of them after they retired. So they gave it all up for nothing. But, uh, but not everybody. Well, How guess, are we doing? On 
Well, I guess it's, uh, we can call it quits here this week, but uh, we'll be back next week with a whole uh, line of uh, topics, including your first meeting of the legendary American dream, Dusty Rhodes. The first time you met Dusty Rhodes, who maybe at that point wasn't even going by the name Dusty, uh, perhaps. But uh, it's going to be interesting to hear that at the top of the next show. We're going to talk about Bob Roop's first uh, time encounter, or at least one of his early encounters with Dusty Rhodes. As later here, Bob, before you head off to Japan, for your first tour of Japan, Dusty and Dick Murdoch, the Texas Outlaws, going to make their debut here in the Florida Territory in 1970. Looking forward to discussing that just a little bit next time around, as well as, well, we can we can tell the Chris Colt stories next week as well. We'll fit those in. People have been wait, waiting for those anyway. We've got a lot to talk about still as we continue on through 1970. We're going to talk a little bit more about Duke Yamuka, Hiro Matsuda, Jim Dalton. There's a name from the past as well. So that'll about do it this week, Bob, but I'm looking forward to next week. We have already got so much on the docket, so much on tap. It's going to be another fun episode. We're not even there yet. You know, it's, a, it's amazing, Ray, and I continue. I mean, we're not brand, I'm not brand new at this anymore, but it's amazing how quick the time goes when you're, <laughs> when you're having a good time. And oh, I, yeah. uh, that leads right into what I always say and I want to continue to say is that without the listener out there, these stories have no relevance because I can tell them, I can tell them all I want. I can write them uh, in books and all that. But uh, if you aren't, if you're not ready to, if you don't like to read or you don't buy books, uh, then they won't be, they won't be seen. The fact that you're willing to listen, you're out there now. I just want to repeat again. I really appreciate you doing that. It means the world to me. And thank you very much. Alrighty. Sounds good guys. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Roop, one more time, Bob. Happy New Year. Looking forward to another episode in a couple, two or three episodes from now, guys. We're going to get into some really interesting stuff. We're going to talk about Bob's first trip to Japan. I want to throw that out there as well. So much coming in the weeks here, heading into, well, we're in the new year now as we begin the new year. So can't wait to jump all around, talk all about these great topics, Bob, with you. And uh, just once again, thank you so much here this week. Well, thank you, Ray. It's been my pleasure. I've got a great tag team going here, my friend. And all right, guys, that's going to wrap it up here this week for the Wrestling Stoop. I want to thank you again, Bob, for taking us along for the ride. Of course, you guys can friend Bob Roop over at Facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. And follow me on X, formerly the Twitter, at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, saying we'll see you again soon for another fun time out here on the Wrestling Stoop. Wrestling Stoop.